Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Distressing times. Mordecai positioned at the king's gate, but can't enter. Father, there are so many people in the services that grapple with varying degrees of challenging, distressing times. Clinging to your promise, understand something of your providential care. Grappling at the same time with the issues of life and the losses, anticipated losses, that we often have to face. You know the needs. You know high tide and low tide of everyday living. You know the brightness of the sun, but the darkness of the clouds, and yet you are Lord over both. So, Father, what we want to do now is to take the truths that are here and build a bridge from that time period of the 480s B.C. into everyday living of 2018 and beyond and ask that you take for us what's needed here and relate it to our own life situations and then share it with others. So these minutes are special. And in even a less than ideal condition today, we've got opportunity to extract real truth for, for real life. So Father, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Just once again now, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Mordecai's position next to that gate but can't enter it? Reflect upon this story I came across years ago. Where Rufus Jones lost his son at 11 years of age. And to him, his son was all the world to him. Now he would write later about that experience of loss in his life. And he ended with a, a parable of how his own heart was open to God's love. A real life parable. Quote, when my sorrow was at its most acute, I was walking along a great city street when suddenly I saw a little girl come out of a great gate, which swung to and fastened behind her. She wanted to go to her home behind the gate, but it would not open. She pounded in vain with her little fist. She rattled the gate, and then she wailed as though her heart would break. And the cry brought her mother out. She caught the child in her arms and kissed away the tears and then said, Didn't you know that I would come? It's all right now. And then he writes, All of a sudden, I saw within my heart there was God's grace behind my shut gate.
You ever felt as though you've been shut out? You want access, particularly to someone who has a sense of why things are going, the way they're going, and what can be done to make a difference in all of it. Maybe it's a Mordecai moment in your own personal experience. What I want to do with you is to draw out what I will call three significant time periods in our lives that deal with this whole matter of distress. When it seems as though you've been shut out and you're needing not only access, but furthermore, you're needing rescue. You ever been there? Let's check it out. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to pen it this way, first of all, that in distressing times, trust God's providential care during what we'll call the anguish we experience in life. What Mordecai is experiencing right now is what I will call anticipatory loss. Hasn't come yet. And maybe we've had some similar experiences in life where you feel as though the clock is ticking. You know that loss is coming. But it seems as though the gate has been closed. Ever been there? When Mordecai learned all that had been done, not some, You see, he's been positioned as an administrator within a foreign land, the land of Persia, in a city known as Susa. What I want you to see at this point regarding anticipatory loss is, first of all, how his emotions are demonstrated visually and then how his emotions are revealed verbally. Visually, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Pause. What fascinates me at this point is that not only is he linking himself to all the times in Jewish history of tremendous loss where his forefathers had put on sackcloth and ashes. Contemporarily, he is linking himself to the Persians who had done this very thing thing in this very decade because when they found out that the Persians had lost to the Greeks in the Bay of Salamis conquest, they put on sackcloth and ashes. Jew and Gentile now alike are going to be looking at this thing and saying to themselves, I'm seeing loss here. What's going on? So many times within that sense of loss, you are given opportunity to get people to begin to think seriously about the gains and the losses of life. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I was in a district conference, and the worship leader was leading us in that very song weeks after his wife had passed away. How do you cope when you're dealing with this degree of distress in life? 
Mordecai now, he's an administrator governmentally within Susa, the winter capital of the Persian leadership. Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. But we've noticed here in the book of Esther the significance of what we call positioning. How God positions people to make a difference. He went out into the midst of the city. He didn't go and grieve on the periphery of the city. He's thrust himself as a governmental administrator into the midst of the city. And now notice with me what comes next in verse 1. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. It's going to arrest people's attention. Because now the verbal and the visual have found a connecting point in his own sense of emotion. You ever been there? But in verse 2, what you and I spot at this point is a Rufus Jones moment. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You don't reign on the king's parade, you see. Rufus Jones sees this child pounding on the gate. Mother comes out. And with a question, didn't you know I would come? It's all right now. And then he pens, all of a sudden, I saw within my heart that there was grace behind my shut gate. And there's Mordecai now as this Jew, and he's got the process now, the peace of living, the providence of God. Where God, as we have said countless times, not merely watches us, He watches over us, the providence of God. But furthermore, you couple that with the presence of God. He's still with me in this, God. I feel feel the distance of life. And then there's the promise of God. Didn't in Genesis 17, not once, not twice, multiple times, Did God say that this was an everlasting covenant? We've got an ancient Hitler on our hands here, you see, named Haman. He wants the annihilation of the Jews. God's plan is that this covenant is eternal. It would be to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Messiah would come into this world as Jew. Die for our sins, the word goes out, Jew and Gentile alike. But as we are told in the scriptures, to the Jew first, speaking of chronologically, and then to the Gentile. But what happens if there's no Jew? Then there's no hope for Gentile. Because if the Jewish population is cut off, Messiah will not come. Stakes are high. And this man has got governmental authority. Is there an authority above the government here that's got to be weighed seriously? 
He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. But then verse 3 captures your attention. Notice the scope of all this. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Now, here we see the fellowship of the fast. There's a connectedness here. And while they might be separated geographically, they are at one at this point spiritually as they are processing providence, they're processing presence, they're processing, furthermore, that matter of the promise. And where is God in the midst of all this? And many of them, we are told, lay in sackcloth and ashes at this point. It's verbal. It's visible. It's central. He's not out on the periphery. But notice that he's positioned here so that his sense of loss is going to get people to begin to think carefully about what's going on. It's a Yiddish proverb. A rabbi said, God gives burdens, but God also gives shoulders. What we've got to bear in mind is that you don't have burdens without shoulders. You've got shoulders based upon God's grace. Another rabbi asked a question by one of his students about Deuteronomy 6.6. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, upon your heart. Why is it said this way, the student asked. Why are we not told to place them in our heart? And the rabbi answered that it is not within our power to place the divine teachings directly in our hearts. All that we can do is place them on the surface of the heart so that when the heart breaks, they will drop in. So many times you and I find people who have been exposed to truth, who have not yet processed truth, because the soil of the heart is hard. And there needs to be brokenness so that there can then be wholeness. And so often the basic principle is the prerequisite for wholeness is brokenness. And so when the heart is broken up, then the soil is such that it allows for the truth of the gospel to penetrate and take hold. We might have loved ones, co-workers that fit this category. Maybe someone in these services today. Maybe some that couldn't make it because of the weather, but need to process this. Why am I going through what I'm going through? But then as the brokenness takes place, sometimes suddenly, other times gradually, if we embrace the principle that brokenness precedes wholeness, 
then we can understand what Vance Havner once wrote. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop. It takes broken clouds to give rain. Broken grain to give bread and broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gave the perfume. It is Peter weeping bitterly, broken by his denial of Jesus Christ, who would then return wholeness to greater power than ever before. Where are you at in all this? Are you standing next to the gate right now and you're wondering, how do I get in? When distressing times, trust God's providential care during the anguish that we experience in life, even if it is anticipatory loss. But now there's, there's a second period I want to draw out, 4 through 11. Second of all, in distressing times, trust God's providential care during the responsibilities that we carry in life. Now, notice the brilliance of this writer. He has given you what's taking place outside the gate. Now he's going to take you inside the gate. Outside the gate, we found Mordecai positioned. Now we go inside the gate and we find Esther positioned. This book is a book about positioning. And how God, who has the sovereign position over this universe, positions people to make a difference according to his strategies. Now you're inside. I'm struck with how secluded Esther is from all this. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs in verse 4 came and told her, The queen was deeply distressed. Now, everybody's distressed. But I want you to notice her initial response. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, as if this is an outward issue. So that he might take off his sackcloth. She means well. There's what I'll call relational loyalty here. But there's positional distancing here. She's not with Mordecai. Mordecai's not with her. And so what's going on here? And why is Mordecai acting the way he is? Well, in verse 5, Esther called for Hathak one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai. Now, we've got a question we've got to ask ourselves. Which side is Hathak truly on? Does he lean towards Haman's view of the Jews? Or does he lean towards the scriptural view of the Jews? Because at this point, he doesn't know that Esther's a Jew. And furthermore, we are not told that Esther appointed him. What we are told is that he has been appointed. So in verse 5, Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai, 
to learn what this was and why it was. Interesting. We need a crisis management system here. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who used to be the senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, writes, a missionary leader from China told me that the Chinese writing for the word crisis has a most interesting analysis. The Chinese are brilliant and they have hit the center of the target in their translation of this word. They have taken the pictograph for danger and put it beside the character of opportunity and used that combination of danger and opportunity for the word crisis. Not separated from one another, joined to one another. And then writes... If we are living in days of crisis, personally, globally, days of danger, let us not forget the opportunity that goes with the danger. That there's opportunity in crisis. But you say, Gary, you're talking about responsibilities that we carry in life. If you are a highly responsible person, very often we are so tuned in and focused upon fulfilling responsibilities that we oftentimes, in the narrowness of our focus, lose out in recognizing our opportunities. But when we have the width, the breadth of perspective to understand how in the midst of crises, God can then wed together responsibility with opportunity. This is the makings of high-impact living. Even in, in anticipatory loss, we face. But at the same time here, what you and I see is that Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was, why it was, and we're asking ourselves, in which way does Hathak lean? Hathak went out to Mordecai. I love what comes next here. It's in the open square. It's all about positioning here in the book of Esther. In other words, this is going to be a very visible conversation. Somebody from the palace has gone outside the gate to talk with somebody grieving who can't go inside the gate. Why? Opportunities lurking here. So in verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He's on to something. 
Remember what we've said from 483 BC to 480 BC and so on. This king had ventured into war with the Greeks, Athens, Sparta, elsewhere, and lost. At the Bay of Salamis, you can look it up. What interests me is that not only had the Persians then put on sackcloth and ashes outside the gate, inside the gate, the king is incredibly aware of the fact that he has financed through taxation his military ventures, and now his, his resources have been depleted. So this Haman's got a plan to replenish the treasury. But what I see happening here is a precursor even to Nazi Germany because one of the strategies in plundering the Jewish population at that time was then to, upon annihilation, according to Hitler and Himmler and the likes, then they would replenish their military ventures of trying to conquer Europe through the plundered goods of those who have been annihilated. If you get a chance, go see The Darkest Hour, though there's not a lot of mention there about Jews. You've got to understand how God took an individual, Winston Churchill, and positioned him for such a time as that, you see. Now, we see here then that even monetarily, um, people are being moved to decisions in opposition to God's will. But what interests me in verse 8 is that Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. This man documents. This man is in tune with the value of detail so that this will not come across as simply human opinion with vested interest from a Jew outside the gate but rather with a document based upon decision-making with inside the gate. The idea here is that Hathak would then show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. One of the great stories throughout Scripture is the story of the rescue. Dramatic rescues like the Egyptians in relationship to the Israelites' Passover and now the Jews make their way out of Egypt. Years ago, a S-4 submarine was rammed by another ship, began to sink. The entire crew was trapped in its prison house of death. AP tells us ships rushed to the scene off the coast of Massachusetts. Diver placed his helmeted ear to the side of the vessel and listened. He heard a tapping. Someone he learned was tapping out a question in the dots and dashes of Morse code. The questions came slowly. 
Is there a rescue? Is there any hope? Can Mordecai trust Hathak at this point? Will he even deliver the goods to Esther and fill her in on the details? Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. He's documented it. In verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai. You wish for texting at this point, or Twitter, something or other, to be able to eliminate the intermediaries altogether, you see. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the court, Feel the inside-outside tension in the story? Without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. Don't overlook the essence of what comes next. Notice what she's saying here. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. You're saying, but hey, Gare, they're husband and wife. Hmm. This is a royal relationship. This king, to put it discreetly, has a harem. And Esther hasn't been with him for 30 days. There is no communication. The question is, has the king now turned his back on Esther as he did on Vashti? Is there such distancing here? How does the king even view Esther at this point? And what would happen if the king found out that she's Jewish? You can just feel with a heartbeat, and you, you ponder the processing of all these questions that are going on in her mind. Why is it that now, why isn't it that I haven't had access so far? As the Chinese would remind us, the pictograph for danger puts it alongside the character of opportunity, and you use that combination for the word crisis. So you tie together the idea of responsibility, the idea of opportunity, and now you're asking yourself, does Esther, having been positioned on the inside, where Mordecai is positioned on the outside, have the wherewithal to be able to combine her sense of responsibility as a royal with the matter of the timing of opportunity to act. But do you feel the tension and do you see now the distance? It's been 30 days. She might not even be given access. And if she is, will she lose her life? Responsibilities. And you're carrying them on your shoulders. 
and you're carrying them in your heart. And in your distressing times, you've got to trust God's providential care, the anguish that we can experience, and we do experience, we will experience in life, the responsibilities, 4 through 11, that we carry, we carry in life. And then thirdly, in distressing times, trust God's providential care during the courage we need in life. Where in verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Isn't this interesting? Evidently, she has been so secluded in the palace. You would think that she is so close to the information when in reality she's so far from the information. She's going to have to get info from the outside, not on the inside. She's not getting it from anybody around her. So close, but so far. Well, Mordecai knows more than she does, and she's the queen. Feel the distance in here. They told Mordecai what Esther said, and so in 13, now, once again, he wishes he could text at this point. Can't. But can he trust Hathak? Second appeal. Mordecai told them to reply, them? Now trust is going to have to be extended to more than just one here. Is there collusion? Or will this be a singular accurate representation from my heart to Esther's as to what's unfolding? Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And now what I consider to be the single and singular most important verse in the entire book of Esther. Let's inch into it. For if you keep silent... At this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. First of all, what I see here is the significance of addressing the matter of the silence. You've been educated. Esther, you're so close, but you're so far. If you keep silent at this time, it's a book about positioning, this is a book about timing, and your life is really a, a book continuously unfolding about positioning and about timing and the relationships and responsibilities and opportunities you have as you consider the Chinese pictograph. If you keep silent at this time, I want you to see the faith statement now in Mordecai. He's been invested in God's promise plan in Genesis. Relief and deliverance will, not might, will rise 
for the Jews from another place. Another place. What we've got to bear in mind is that in the Jewish Targums, the word place is a substitution for the name for God. Esther will know this. Mordecai knows this. It is possible Hathak does not know this. It's coded. Hathak may not know Esther, who had been discipled by Mordecai, should know. Mordecai has just revealed his faith when he has spoken of certainty, the eternal covenant of Genesis chapter 17. So if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Morse code. Rescue. But in the media sea, you and your father's house will perish. Do you realize how threatening it is to be so close to Haman in that palace? And then, my favorite phrase. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In the form of a question. Thinking seriously, I was about to sit down in a movie theater and watch The Darkest Hour. I was pondering some of the writings of Winston Churchill. The morning May 10th dawned in London with news of a German offensive. Holland, Belgium had been invaded, France soon to be trodden under by rapidly advancing Nazi boots. Six o'clock that morning, church summoned to the palace. King asked him to mobilize the government against Hitler. Pogrom. By the end of the day, Churchill had accepted a position he would hold for the duration of the war, one that would secure him a place of honor in history. In his journal now are these words. During these last crowded days, a time word, of the political crisis, a Chinese pictograph. My pulse had not quickened at any moment. I, I took it all as it came, but I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of Now I have it underlined. At last I had the authority, there's the key idea, to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I was walking with destiny and that all that my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Capture the time elements there? This hour? This trial, Esther, you inside the gate, so prepared by Mordecai, positioned outside the gate, 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now you've got to ask yourself, where do I need courage? So I pull together the providence of God, the presence of God, the promise of God. I look at the crises of my life, past, present, and future, and then personalize and build the bridge from 480 or so B.C. into 2018 living and beyond. And paraphrase it. And who knows whether you, I, we have not come to fill in the blank for such a time as this. No accidents in time. Sovereign appointments in time. How is Esther going to respond? This is a heroic woman. She's going to be real with you. Courage battles fear and overcomes it through faith. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now we sense the connectedness of faith. Because throughout the Old Testament, fasting was always connected with intercession. She says, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Do you find the connectedness of fellowship here? Who enters into the crises of life with you? Don't underestimate the subtlety of what comes next. The writer then informs us that Esther says, Then I will go to the king. It's been 30 days. How does he even feel about me? Though it is against the law, I know what happened to Vashti. Don't underestimate what comes next. And if I perish, I perish. My life's temporal. God's strategy is eternal. Do you realize she has not seen him for 30 days? And furthermore, she's entering into a time of fasting for three days. In a very appearance-oriented culture, a very appearance-driven king, can you imagine what, how she's going to look walking in there? in comparison to all the others that come in and out of his life. That's a faith statement. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Up until now, Mordecai's been ordering Esther. Now the royal kicks in. 
she's ordering him. Martin Niemöller. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. Will you speak, Esther, in the midst of our anguish, embracing the responsibility with a sense of courage? When all of a sudden a mother says, didn't you know I would come? It's all right now. All of a sudden I saw with my heart, Rufus Jones wrote, there was grace behind my shut gate. Got a shut gate this morning? Understand, you've got access. And you don't even need a snowplow for it. You've got access to go through that gate, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. So now, Father, chapter by chapter, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, we keep wanting to being completely, dependently committed to understanding and applying your word and building a bridge from then to now. Help us to take what is here in this chapter and understand that your sovereign strategy of to the Jew first and also to the Greek can't be thwarted by anyone governmentally, can't be thwarted by anyone relationally, can't be thwarted by what you are doing physically because you are good and you have authority. And we trust the one who three days later raised Jesus from the dead. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.